electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Brian Sullivan, and tonight, $28 billion and counting. The boycott toll mounting on companies like Target, Anheuser-Busch, and we've got brand new data on how Americans are reacting to the backlash. A perfect storm brewing for summer travel is taking that dream trip more of a fantasy. Duping JP Morgan. You won't believe the latest revelations on how yet another millennial startup founder fooled some of Wall Street's smartest investors. Forget the crossover, the jazz. Call this Michael Jordan's greatest play ever. And hide your eyes. Yeah, that's me. I regret it. It's Deep Fake Friday. We're going to show you how AI can actually be used for good instead of evil, because that mullet is evil. All that and much more. So belly up or buckle up. Last call is up and stick around for the mullet right now. Work in front, party in the back. All right, good evening here and good afternoon out west. We're going to get to all those stories shortly, but first up on last call tonight, it is anything but a sleepy start to the holiday weekend. There are three major stories unfolding with big implications across the globe and maybe for your money. U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken is set to make a high-stakes visit to China this weekend. Russia says it is now positioning nuclear bombs inside Belarus next to Ukraine. Also, More Iranian oil is flowing in the energy market at a level not seen in years. And ahead of Secretary Blinken's trip, check out this rather odd scene. That is, of course, Microsoft co-founder Bill Gates meeting with Chinese President Xi Jinping today. Gates was there on behalf of his Gates Foundation. He is the latest U.S. business leader to visit China in recent months. But remember, Gates' visit comes only weeks after the company he founded, Microsoft told us that Chinese state-sponsored hackers compromised critical cyber infrastructure in multiple American industries. So anything but a quiet evening heading into a long weekend, starting with China. Joining us now is former U.S. Secretary of Defense and former CIA Director Leon Panetta. Uh, Secretary Panetta, thanks for joining us. I guess just a broader question. Do you approve of Gates meeting with Xi Jinping when... There is so much tension between the governments? Oh, I think it's a good thing. I, I think uh, uh, China, uh, frankly, is trying to reach out uh, in different ways. They, they uh, talked to uh, Bill Gates. They talked to Jamie Dimon. They talked to Elon Musk. Uh, so I, I think that's a good thing because uh, it shows that they're still interested in American investment in terms of their economy. True, I'm sure they'd be happy to take our money, but will this influence at all or change the way Secretary Blinken needs to approach the trip? Yeah, you know, we can't kid ourselves. It's an icy relationship with China right now. 
Uh, and uh, this is probably not going to result in uh, suddenly changing uh, that relationship. But what you hope is that you can break some of the ice in the relationship to, in the very least, improve communication and dialogue, particularly when it comes to potential crises. There was a report Unconfirmed, one source in, I think it was called the Messenger, American Military News picked up on it and some others, that the Biden administration may be prepping plans to evacuate Americans from Taiwan just in case. If indeed that is true, and we don't know, but let's say it is true, Secretary Panetta, would that just be a good plan to have regardless, or would that kind of plan potentially signal that we may know something at high levels? Well, from my, my own perspective, frankly, I, I think uh, the Defense Department, the State Department ought to have those plans anyway uh, in the event that something happens there. So I, I don't view it as something out of the ordinary. I view it as, frankly, the kind of planning they ought to be engaging in uh, just in the event that uh, there may be a crisis. So I wouldn't read too much into that. Uh, obviously, uh, uh, look, the relationship with China uh, has some tough points. One of those is Taiwan, what happens with Taiwan. Uh, the other is our intelligence relationship, uh, which is really bumpy right now. Uh, they're, they're going to Cuba to try to get more intelligence from the United States. Uh, we've had problems with reconnaissance flights. Uh, so there's a number of areas. But I think the, the main reason China is now doing this is because of their economy. Their economy is sluggish right now. And very frankly, they do depend a great deal on United States investment and trade. Do you think they, and I, I hate to even ask this question, Secretary, do you think they view us as weak and unable to respond to something? Well, you know, I, I've often said that uh, the reason Putin ultimately went into the Ukraine is because uh, he sensed weakness on the part of the United States and our allies. Um, you know, he went into the Crimea, didn't pay a price, went into Syria, didn't pay a price, uh, conducted a bold attack against the United States on cyber uh, and didn't pay a price. And I think she basically sensed that weakness as well. Mm. Now, I do think that the Ukraine has made a difference. Uh, the fact that the United States and our allies came together to support Ukraine, stop the Russian invasion, I think it's made she think twice about what he should do on Taiwan. So uh, I think we're, we're probably at a pretty good place where hopefully we can begin to establish some better dialogue. I know in November, she is going to be coming to the APEC meeting in San Francisco. That could very well be an opportunity mm. to meet President Biden. Yeah, maybe a, a much needed meeting. I want to pivot. You mentioned Russia. Um, Vladimir Putin sending his first nuclear weapon to his ally Belarus on the Ukraine border, saying there's no need to use nuclear weapons now. But it's a provocative move, to say the least. Is there a response on our side? Well, uh, Putin's been bluffing a lot with uh, the use of uh uh, possible uh, nuclear weapons, uh, particularly battlefield uh, weapons. Uh, and I think it's still a bluff. I, I don't, you know, she has made, speaking of China, she has made very clear to Putin not to use nuclear weapons in the Ukrainian war. 
Uh, Putin is isolated a great deal right now. The last thing he needs to do is to offend the only friend he's got in the world, which is she. So I, I think this is still all part of a bluff. Let's hope you're right. Secretary Leon Panetta, we really appreciate it, sir. You have a good long weekend. Thank you. Good to be with you. You too, Brian. Okay, thank you. All right, turning now to oil. As U.S. nuclear talks with Iran remain ongoing, Iran is putting more and more oil onto the global market. In fact, by some measures, their oil sales are now around a five-year high. Iranian oil exports surpassing 1.5 million barrels per day in May, the first time it has reached that level in five years. Iran's oil output declined sharply after President Trump exited the Iran nuclear deal and reimposed sanctions. But with this newfound flood of oil, what will it mean for the energy markets, prices, and geopolitics? Let's bring in our panel. RBC Capital Markets Managing Director, CBC contributor, Halima Croft, and Eurasia Group, Iran and energy analyst, Gregory Brew. Gregory and Halima, thanks for joining us. Halima, uh, what do you make of this Iranian oil and how might it impact any talks, assuming there are any, on an Iran deal? I mean, we've seen, you know, consistently ever-increasing barrels from Iran hitting the market. The question is going to be, you know, at some point, does this become a decision that OPEC actually has to look at in terms of potentially bringing Iran into a production agreement? I mean, certainly it does not look like the Biden administration has been particularly robust in enforcing sanctions. These Iranian barrels come at a convenient time for the Biden administration with the U.S. SPR sale winding down in June. And so the question is, if you get some type of U.S.-Iran understanding, they won't call it an agreement because that would trigger congressional you know, review. If you get some type of understanding that leads to even less enforcement, are we looking at potentially you know, another 500,000 Iranian barrels hitting the market? Uh, Gregory, I mean, you, do you concur with that? That, uh, And I also do wonder, do we want, I mean, do we want to sort of turn a blind eye in a way to this? Because as we know, high oil prices lead to high gasoline prices, which become a political liability. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, from that perspective, uh, getting more oil on the market is a good thing for the Biden administration. It's a good thing for the United States because it keeps gasoline prices low. But I think there are three big areas to keep in mind here. The first is Iran's relationship with China. China is taking the bulk of these oil exports. It's taking a lot of oil from Iran. It's getting a lot of it at a discount below market price. That indicates that Iran's relationship with China is getting a little better. Now, granted, China is still keeping Iran sort of at arm's length, but there are indications that Iran's relationship with China is getting a little better as the result of this oil trade. The second implication is, as noted, the relationship between Iran and the United States. Iran is exporting this oil seemingly in defiance of U.S. sanctions. That means two things. Either the sanctions aren't working or, as mentioned, maybe the U.S. is easing back a little bit on sanctions enforcement, whether to make a deal a little bit easier or whether, as as we've said, to bring the price of oil down. So that's an implication. The third, finally, is Iran's relationship with OPEC, specifically Saudi Arabia. Now, we all remember from a few months ago, Iran and Saudi Arabia announced they would be normalizing relations trying to uh, improve relations, trying to decrease instability in the Gulf. But I imagine there are some pretty tense conversations happening in Riyadh right now. Mm. Saudi Arabia has had to continue to cut production to try to lift prices, even as Iran brings more and more barrels onto the market. And Halima, as, as you and I both know, there, there may be also some question slash tension slash confusion around the Russia relationship with OPEC, in particular Saudi Arabia as well. Because if you've got oil, if Iran doing this, 
Russia's numbers were just ratcheted up just a little bit for February as well. Their quotas kind of moved higher. How do you see this shaking out when the price of oil remains probably, probably to OPEC's view, a little stubbornly low? I mean, the issue with Iran is they are actually exempted from having to make OPEC production cuts. They're exempted along with Libya and Venezuela, countries that have also seen increases in exports, not as big as Iran, but those three exempted countries have shown that they are putting more barrels on the market. Now, Russia is a party to the agreement. Now, the Saudis and some other countries have raised issues about how robust are the Russian exports. Some have questioned the secondary sources. They're actually reviewing the secondary source data on Russia. And so I think that is a to-be-continued story in terms of how Russia relates to OPEC when those new secondary source numbers actually come in. Yeah, and, and to, to our uninitiated non-OPEC attending yeah. <laughs> viewers, which is pretty much 99.99999% of them, yeah. Malima, uh, can you explain in plain English, as you always elegantly do, what do you mean by explain secondary sources and why this is a, pardon the pun, source of some question? Well, it's, the, it's basically the providers that basically, in addition to government reporting on their exports, there are independent agencies that provide data in terms of what export numbers look like for the producers within OPEC+. And so there's been some question as of late about how strong are these Russian exports, because Russia has agreed to do voluntary cuts as well as some other OPEC members. And so the question is, is Russia you know, not making those cuts? Russia certainly is under their quota. But the question is, are they complying in any way with the cuts that they've said that they will be making? Yeah, Gregory, how do you see, how do you and the Eurasia Group team see this playing out? I mean, what 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 can we not? What are we going to do? What can we do? Or to my earlier point, do we care because it's keeping, let's be honest, it's keeping gasoline prices <laughs> a little lower. And as we learned last year, gasoline prices kind of matter when it comes to elections. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's a fine line to walk on the one hand. Uh, the Biden White House likes it when gas prices are low. Last year saw a great deal of political turmoil and pressure on the Biden administration about bringing gas prices back down. So they have to be happy about that. On the other hand, they're not happy that Putin continues to earn quite a bit of money from oil exports. We've been watching watching Russian oil export data very closely, and we really haven't seen a tremendous amount of movement. Russia's been able to maintain exports uh, quite resiliently. Uh, likely because they're cutting domestic production or they're, you know, they're they're making other changes. But Russia is continuing to put a lot of barrels onto the market. And given Russia's relationship with Saudi Arabia, given their uh, alliance with OPEC, they're going to continue and given their need for money, you know, in, in order to continue their war in Ukraine, they're going to continue to export as much as they can for as long as they can. Yeah, certainly they, they need that money yeah. to fund to fund their war machine. Uh, Gregory uh, Halima. Great context. Important story. Don't hear a lot about it elsewhere, but we appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Well, despite all the stuff we just talked about, it's been a nice little run for stocks and hopefully your money. Look at your weekly scorecard. The Dow up over 1%, but the S&P up more than 2.5%. It's best weekly run since March and the fifth week in the green in a row for the S&P. The Nasdaq says, hold my beer. It's up eight weeks in a row, rose more than 3%. The Nasdaq, by the way, now up 30% this year, which means if we ended here, it's like December 30th or something, this would make it the sixth best year for the Nasdaq in the last 15. Not bad. For today, cruise lines remain steaming hot. The biggest winner of the day, Carnival Cruise Lines up more than 20%. Ooh, the biggest loser, you heard Jim talking about it. 
Humana, or the week, excuse me, Humana falling more than 13% on the week. But you heard Kramer saying mad money. Maybe it's gone a little too far down too fast. All right, we are just getting started. And on deck, Michael Jordan may have just made his greatest play ever. We'll show you the numbers behind his reported deal to sell the Charlotte Hornets. And next, a perfect storm perhaps looming for summer travel. Are you out of luck if you're still trying to take a trip? Don't worry. Hope is not lost. We'll bring the hope. Coming up. When you visit a state as big and diverse as Texas, there are a million different trips you can take. Let's say you've got an appetite for whitewater kayaking. You can get your own. So this is why they call it Devil's River. Trip to Texas. Or maybe you have an actual appetite. I'll take a pound of brisket, six ribs, uh, three links of sausage, and a, a piece of pecan pie. Trip to Texas. Go to TravelTexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. Introducing Celebration Key, your key to paradise. Unlock Carnival's all-new exclusive destination at Grand Bahama, where you can dive into clear lagoons, try all the water sports, or unwind on a mile-long, pristine beach with breathtaking sunset views. This vacation paradise has it all. Celebration Key, welcoming guests in summer 2025. Carnival, choose fun. Copyright 2024, Carnival Corporation. All rights reserved. Ships Registry, the Bahamas and Panama. All right, time now for tomorrow's news tonight. Some of the stories you're going to be talking about tomorrow morning, CNBC style. First up, and parents, listen up. Meta set to lower the minimum age for its Quest VR headset to just 10 years old. That according to The Verge's Alex Heath. Meta is going to ask parents to approve the creation of their kid's account, and they claim they will only recommend apps to your kids that are age appropriate. At 10, we shall see. All right, next up, an update on a story that we reported to you last night. Toyota stock officially sealing its best week since 2009. Now, it did close down today 2%, but that was enough. It was also its third double-digit weekly gain in more than 20 years. The record rally comes after Toyota outlined plans for a new generation of electric cars. And by the way, speaking of EVs, truckmaker Nikola is announcing another round of layoffs. The job cuts are expected to impact 270 employees about 120 of them based in Arizona. Thoughts certainly out to them and their families. All right. In the meantime, the long Father's Day and Juneteenth holiday weekend is getting underway and travel is already beginning to surge. Yesterday, 2.7 million people went through an airport checkpoint at TSA all across the country. And that number exceeded the same day back before the pandemic lockdowns. And investors, they've been cashing in on the demand boom. Carnival Cruise Lines, up 52% over the past month. Avis, 29. Delta, 26. And Airbnb, up 20%. So with a summer travel frenzy already in full force, can you still plan a getaway and score any good deals, or are you just going to bank the bank, bank, break the bank, he said. Joining us now with some insight is the Points Guide Director of Content, Eric Rosen. It's been a long day. Eric, thanks for joining us. Is it too late? Some people like to wait, you know, see if they can score some lat. Let's wait till Labor Day. See if we can score a last minute deal. I would imagine this year that's a terrible strategy. 
This year, we've been telling people for quite a few months to book your plans as early as possible, really lock in those dates because we saw airfares, car rental prices, hotel prices continue to rise. And unfortunately, that has been the case. That said, if you have been uh, waiting for some last minute deals, we have seen quite a few attractive ones recently. They're nothing you can count on. Uh, but for instance, Southwest and Alaska both had uh, fair sales to Alaska. I was, pardon me, to Hawaii this past week uh, from multiple U.S. cities, both on the West Coast and East Coast. We saw fares as low as $119 each way on Alaska from Los Angeles to Honolulu. So uh, a little Hawaiian vacation uh, might not go miss right about now. And then a low cost carrier from Europe uh, called Norse Atlantic Airways, was offering fares from various cities like New York, Fort Lauderdale, Los Angeles, Boston, Washington, to Oslo, London, Berlin, Paris, and Rome, among others, uh, for about $129 one way, up to about uh, just about $189 one way. That said, plan to pay extra for things like seat selection and baggage and stuff like that. These deals, though, aren't things that you can count on coming your way. So I can just urge people to be prepared. Think of a few places you might want to go. When you see something like that pop up, press that booking button and then start looking for the hotels and the other ancillary things like car rentals you may need immediately to ensure that you have the trip that you want. Oslo in summer. It's like, you know, summers in Rangoon, luge lessons. You know, I don't, have you but, been there? It's about 22 hours of sunshine. It's pretty magical. And it's all electric cars off off of oil riches. It's amazing. Yeah. Eric, but, but OK, I have a question about Fly Norse. Who is Fly Norse? It's Norse Atlantic Airways. It's a new uh, startup. You might remember Norwegian Air from a few years back. It's basically like a new incarnation of that. Super cheap fares, but then expect to pay for things like in-flight meals, even that little blanket, perhaps a carry-on bag, things like that. So if you can travel fast and travel light, it's the airline for you. If you're bringing along the whole family and everyone's got a checked bag and needs to sit together, it's going to be a bit more expensive for you. Give us another good deal, something else. If we don't want to go to Oslo or Berlin, where should we go? Absolutely. Well, again, look for Hawaii and stuff. One of my favorite things to do is to play around with Google Flights. It's got a great explore tool. You can put in your airport and then set your parameters like a week-long trip or a weekend trip. You can search by month. You can search by six months. And you look on a floating map that you can play around with and see what kinds of deals are out there. I see from my home base in Los Angeles, I can get to Montana to explore Glacier National Park for about $230 round trip. I could head to Puerto Rico for about $330 round trip sometime in July. And if I felt like going a little farther afield, Bogota, Colombia is pretty temperate all year round and airfares there are under $400 round trip for me. Good stuff. Hey, we love it. This is this is news you can use. <laughs> I've got one more tip if you want it. <laughs> Quickly, like in 10 seconds. Otherwise, I'm going to get fired. U.S. Travel has daily getaways now through the end of June. Go to dailygetaways.ustravel.org. Also, check out thepointsguy.com, thepointsguy.com. Also, our social media channels at The Point Sky. We alert you to all these deals as they happen. You can count on us every day to bring you fresh content. You did, I think you did it in 10 seconds. Eric, and we appreciate it. There you go. <laughs> Oslo and summer. It's great. Have it's a pickled herring and it's going to be see some polar bear. Thank you. All right. Still <laughs> ahead. While the auto sector is the source of some rather interesting insider buys this week, your exclusive segment with some big names and one big name coming up. Plus, new revelations about how a millennial startup founder duped JP Morgan into buying her company. Wait to hear the details coming up. 
When it comes to family vacations, there are a million different trips you can take. You can get your own trip to Texas. Or if you prefer a vacation from your family, you can always get your own leave the kids with grandma trip to Texas. So go to TravelTexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. All right, time now for your exclusive insider buying top five, highlighting the five companies where the top execs are stepping up and buying their own stock. And according to our friends at Verity Data, here are the names this week. Coming in at number five, Advance Auto Parts. Executives buying up half a million worth of the company stock. This by the interim chair, by the way, and he led around to four different buyers. Stock's been wrecked, down 50% in six months. Speaking of cars, auto retailer AutoNation had a million-dollar insider buy this week. CEO Michael Manley coming in with his first ever buy as an insider. By the way, it follows a big sale by big holder ESL. Yes, that is Eddie Lampert of Sears Fames Firm. This week, the third biggest insider buy, another auto parts company. What's going on? AutoZone. Apparently, the chief information officer wanted to get in the zone and snapped up $1.1 million of AZO. Now to your top two of the week. Moving on from autos to retail. Dollar General coming in at the number two spot with the chairman of the board, buying $1.3 million in that stock this week. But the top buy of the week, a big name in a big name, Ryan Cohen coming in hot and buying nearly $10 million worth of GameStop. That should make the Redditors happy. Cohen has now invested $96 million into GameStop at a cost basis of, wait for it, $2.61. Stock's at 22 and change. So on paper, Cohen has made a meme load of money. And that news setting the stock price even higher. This week, it is a big deal. And proof that Cohen, who co-founded e-commerce company Chewy, is betting on himself. Turn around the video game retailer. There you have it. Vance Auto Parts, AutoNation, AutoZone, Dollar General, GameStop, a segment you will only see here on Last Call and on CNBC Pro. Meantime, a stunning court filing out of J.P. Morgan Chase. The bank is revealing new details about its buyout of the financial aid startup, Frank. It bought the company in 2021 for $175 million. The problem? Many of the key numbers that Frank's executive gave about its customers simply were not true, not even close. And it allegedly came at the express direction of founder Charlie Javis. According to this new filing, many Frank employees knew something very fishy was up. So how on earth didn't J.P. Morgan know this? CBC's Hugh Son dug into the story. Big piece on CBC.com today. Thanks for staying late, Hugh, because it's like... Elizabeth Holmes. Now, we don't not allege anything, but you got all these millennial founders who've been accused of duping some apparently really smart people. Supposedly sophisticated uh, purchasers, acquirers. Uh, good evening, Brian. Great to be with you. So, yeah, I mean, look, J.P. Morgan bought this college aid platform, college aid financial aid platform called Frank in 2021 to get closer to young people, deepen relationships with that cohort. They soon discover that almost none of the supposed customers of this platform are, are real people. They fire the founder, Charlie Javis, and then sue her for fraud. And that was back in December. So since then, we've had a legal back and forth uh, you know, between the two legal teams. Javis's attorneys claim that they, that they want partial discovery. 
JP Morgan this week pushing actually for full discovery and saying that they want to depose people like their former employees. Uh, this is the scene, this is, sets the scene for how this uh, new information gets disclosed. Yesterday in the filing, they, they give uh, actual documents that show the internal Slack messages. And Brian, it's always in the Slack messages, as you know, the internal messages, whether it's with LIBOR or other previous uh, financial industry kind of shenanigans, you know, lots of times you have the internal messages that are very, uh, you know, in which people are very candid about what's, what's going on. You know, in this case, January 2021, the, the, uh, the Frank employees look at their, the new uh, public-facing figures in which their user account goes from ballpark 300,000 to 4.25 million. Mm. Uh, and the messages are, and the messages uh, say, do we really have 4.25 million students? Uh, but it wasn't even, Hewitt, like, I know from real? your story, it, it wasn't even, now, I, first off, I'm curious why they would want, to, why the Javisa's team wants discovery. I don't know what they're hoping to find, who knows, but I know from your story that it wasn't like yeah. there was some error of a couple thousand potential clients, right? It was like a hundred or a couple hundred thousand, which then magically became a couple million, like overnight. One of the things in the original lawsuit from December is essentially Javis had hired a data science professor from a New York area school to confect, to create millions of fake emails and accounts. And that's really sort of the genesis of that. You know, the reason why Javis's team wants partial discovery is because they claim that J.P. Morgan is, is suing her improperly, that she is innocent and that they, that they are cherry picking certain things, uh, certain parts of documents to put into you know, the, the, the public sphere and to make her look guilty. And J.P. Morgan's uh, response to that is, uh, you know, if, if you want to talk about documents, we've got them. We own uh, Frank, so therefore we own Frank's servers and we own all the emails uh, and the Slack messages. And by the way, this is what they say. Yeah, so you don't have to, it's not hard discovery when it's your company now. What a, what a story. You know, you got these 30-something millennial founders who have been, you know, allegedly or have been like in Holmes's case convicted of just, I mean, pulling the wool over, quote, the smart money. Urge everyone to read Hugh's story on CBC.com. Hugh, thank you. Take care, Brian. All right, take care. All right, still ahead. The mounting costs of conservative-led boycotts. How are Americans at large responding to the backlash against brands like Bud Lights and surprising new findings? A story you won't hear anywhere else. All right, welcome back. Time now for a quick Friday RBI. You're probably well aware from shows like this, Oh, the remarkable run for American stocks, but one country has been kind of flying under the radar of investors, and it's actually one of, if not the best performing markets in the world recently. Do you know who it is? I can't hear you anyway. That country is Brazil. Shares of Brazil's ETF, the EWZ, there's a few, but that's the biggest, are up 20% in 90 days. We've done well, but we're only up 11%. You go, Brazil. Notable players starting to take notice. Fidelity, some hedge funds reportedly boosting their exposure to South America's biggest economy, Brazil's central bank. Finally looking easy, sky-high rates. They've got a secure source of energy. They do a lot of hydro. They're importing LNG. A lot of that coming to fruition. Brazil, one of, if not the, hottest stock markets in the world, at least for now. 
Meantime, the financial hit from some boycotts and controversies around social issues are mounting. Big companies like Anheuser-Busch, Target, and others have lost nearly $30 billion in investor value in the past few months. So these companies are dealing with some declines right now. But on the other side, it is worth noting this. According to investment firm LGBT Capital, the U.S. queer community has over a trillion dollars in spending power. So many businesses are staying committed to supporting Pride Month, including our parent company, Comcast. It's not even, look at all those names. If I named them all, the show would be over. So there you go. So while some brands bend under pressure and others reaffirm their commitments, how do consumers now feel about businesses supporting Pride? Joining us now with further insight, Change Research senior pollster, Betsy App. Betsy, thanks for joining us. Um, all right, you just did a study on this topic and you had some rather surprising findings. What was the most surprising thing that you and your team found from these surveys? Thanks for having me on, Brian. Uh, I'm a pollster with Change Research, where we partner with forward-thinking organizations to understand uh, tricky topics in public opinion using online polls, including this recent poll of more than 3,000 registered voters nationwide on issues pertaining to the LGBTQ community. What we're seeing is that consumers are skeptical of corporate marketing and communications campaigns related to LGBTQ pride. 60% of US voters see these activities around pride as a way to maximize profits while just 30% see them as authentic, as genuine allyship uh, or support for the LGBTQ community. Is it, Betsy, is that a good thing? I mean, if I hear there's a profit motive, I can look at that 60% and say, okay, the 60% say these companies just want to make money. I can look at it cynically, or I can look at it and be like, well, that's, you know, whatever they're doing, for whatever reason, is going to boost the cause. Uh, you're right. Um, so we're seeing these uh, controversies and many Americans in this moment, in the wake of the pandemic, are skeptical of all corporate behavior, not just what they're doing around pride. They think that corporations in the abstract are trying to take advantage of consumers, putting profits over people. Um, but these corporations exist to make money. So, I, you know, I'm not surprised that consumers perceive it this way. Yeah, I mean, but it's I, I, I would take it. I would read it more as, as kind of a, a positive in some ways. Is, is that unfair? Yeah, I think it can be a positive. And I think, you know, businesses should uh, be very thoughtful about how they uh, approach LGBTQ pride. Uh, the data suggests that businesses should have a plan. That plan should be brand aligned and rooted in values that are practiced internally and externally year round, not just in June around pride. I wanna be clear that our research does not suggest that businesses should just throw up their hands and do nothing around pride. In fact, uh, the cost of inaction includes yeah. customer loss, employee loss, reputational damage. It's especially true, uh, you know, given the rising rates 
of LGBTQ identification among younger Americans. We did a poll last year with Teen Vogue that shows that one in four Americans under the age of 35 identifies as LGBTQ. And it's these younger consumers who are basing their purchasing decisions on their values. One in four. Wow. Betsy App, Change Research. Really uh, eye-opening stats there. Thank you very much for coming on. Different side to the story. Betsy, have a good weekend. All right, coming up, it may go down as Michael Jordan's greatest play ever, the mind-boggling figures and the amount of money MJ stands to make. Michael Jordan has had really, I mean, countless number of great plays during his career from the game-winning shot against Georgetown in the NCAA Finals, that dagger against the Utah Jazz that sealed the Bulls' second three-peat. But his latest play might be the greatest one of all. Michael Jordan finalizing a deal to sell his majority stake of the Charlotte Hornets. No word yet on the final price, but the deal reportedly worth $3 billion. The team did not disclose what percentage of his stake Jordan might sell, some or all, but the basketball legend will remain as a minority shareholder. Jordan first bought the team in 2010 for $275 million when they were known as the Bobcats. So who are the new owners, owners of the Hornets? Well, it's a group led by two investors, Gabe Plotkin and Rick Schnall. Now, you might remember the name Gabe Plotkin is the founder of Melvin Capital. That is the hedge fund that just blew up investor money, and not in a good way, after his bets against GameStop backfired. So he shut the firm down because they lost so much money that now he has enough money to buy an NBA team. Jordan's decision to sell ends his unsuccessful 13-year run overseeing the Hornets. During that time, team has never won a playoff series or finished higher than six in the Eastern Conference. The Hornets have also had the fifth worst winning percentage in the NBA. Yet, Jordan could make one or even $2 billion on the deal. That, according to sports business analyst Joe Pompliano, that's more, by the way, if he does, if Jordan makes $2 billion, that would be more than he made from Nike and his entire playing career. Let's bring in Joe Pompliano, investor at Pomp Investments, the host of the Joe Pomp Show podcast. Joe, I mean, we don't know the final numbers, but if those numbers that you're banding around are right, like literally 30 years of making a bunch of money, Jordan will make more money than all those 30 combined. Yeah, thanks for having me, Brian. I think there's a couple of different ways to look at this deal, really. On one hand, uh, many people are going to say that Michael Jordan failed as an NBA owner. Over the last 13 years that he's owned the team, they've objectively been one of the worst teams in the NBA. All the stats that you just read, right? They haven't made the playoffs but three times. They've never won a playoff series. They have the fifth worst winning percentage in the league over that time period. Some people are going to say that. But on the other hand, a lot of people are going to say that he objectively won as an NBA owner simply because he was able to sell this franchise for reported $3 billion. And I want to give you a little bit of context on how big of a number that is. So you mentioned it. Michael Jordan bought the team in 2010 at a valuation of around $270 million. He sold a 20% stake in 2020 at $1.5 billion valuation. Mm. And now three years later, he's selling the rest of the team, the bigger majority piece, at a $3 billion valuation. That's 11 times their current revenue 
And the average NBA or NFL team would typically trade at a six to seven times revenue multiple. So I think this speaks more about the NBA as a whole and the product rather than Michael Jordan and the Charlotte Hornets specifically. Yeah, because Joe, I'll ask you, does it matter if you're a good NBA team? I don't think it does. Yeah, it, it's it's it matters kind of like where you're where you're located probably matters more than if you haven't won a game in five years. I don't think it would have affected the valuation at all. The media rights certainly play a big deal, and I think that's one of the reasons why it sold for such a multiple is because the NBA is now going to go out and they're in a negotiating window now where they have a $25 billion media rights deal, and they think they can get 50 to $75 billion on their next deal. So I think you look at it and you say, this is a scarce asset. There's only 30 of them. Everyone wants one. They don't go up for sale often. We have to pay a premium for this. And I think Michael Jordan just sat there and said, hey, I could wait a couple more years when this new media rights deal gets announced, but why not sell today? $3 billion is a lot of money, and it's probably more than the team is worth at its current rate today. Let's switch gears. You had a story earlier this week about the burgeoning business of companies that basically lend money to athletes earlier in their career for a cut of future earnings. Now, if the athlete goes on to be a bust, it doesn't matter, but for stars like Ellie De La Cruz and others, they could end up basically owing millions. It, it, there's nothing wrong with this, but at the same time, do these players have any recourse or they have to little, sign a contract? Got to give me 8% of your salary no matter how much you ever make. Yeah, so the company that I wrote about is called Big League Advantage, and it was founded in 2016 by a former minor league baseball player named Michael Schwimmer. And the business model is actually pretty simple. They give a cash upfront payment to minor league baseball players primarily, and they get in exchange a percentage of, a percentage of your future revenue that you make in the MLB. So the catch is that you don't have to pay back any money unless you make it to Major League Baseball. So they kind of work on a venture capital model rather than just a traditional bank that's loaning money, and they really hunt for the big fish. So the examples that I I talked about and you just referenced there were Fernando Tatis Jr. and Ellie De La Cruz, because those are really the players that are going to make them a lot of money because 80, you know, 70 to 80 percent of the players that they invest in actually don't make it to Major League Baseball and don't give them any money in return. So it's kind of this weird thing where it may feel a little weird and it feels like it's not the correct thing to do. But ultimately, you know, objectively, 80 percent of these players are getting a great deal because they're getting a loan that they never have to pay back. What are they? I mean, OK, fair enough. But you get a signing bonus. But let's be clear. A lot of these players probably are taking these loans for reasons that a more financially responsible person might view as not the best decision. Yeah, exactly. So my, my understanding is some of these players do the intelligent thing, with, I would call, which is use the money to increase their chances of making it to Major League Baseball, whether that's hiring a nutritionist or a chef, hiring a personal trainer, getting a better apartment, getting uh, physical therapy, whatever it is. And the reason why they have to do that is because the salaries in Major League Baseball have historically been so low. They doubled salaries over the past year, and still the average minor league baseball player is still only making twenty dollars to $30,000 annually. Joe Pompliano, great stuff there. I mean, listen, Michael Jordan, the Hornets, two billion bucks potentially. Uh, truly amazing. Joe, love having you on the program. Have a great long weekend. Thank you very much. Thanks, Brian. You too. All right. All right. Coming up, it is Deep Fake Friday. Now, okay, that's a real picture of me when I was 18. I I'm sorry. All right. But coming up, we're going to show how AI and this cool tool can make that or your relatives at any age talk to you. All right, time for our recurring Deep Fake Friday segment where we hit on things like AI. And, of course, a lot has been made about the technology and how it can be used for scams, extortion, and fraud. And 
While that certainly can be true, AI and deep fakes do have their benefits. Check out this video. It's from a company called DID. It's using technology to give AI chatbots like ChatGPT a face and a voice. It makes you feel like you're speaking with somebody instead of a robot. Millions of people have already used DID's platform to bring photos of ancestors and celebrities to life. To give it a try, and I had nothing to do with this, but my beloved show team here has asked them to animate a photo of me when I was 18 and I had a sweet flow. Hey Brian, remember me? I'm you from senior year of high school. Obviously you didn't sound like this back then. Maybe one day AI will be able to replicate your voice from when you were 18. Anyway, do you remember this yearbook picture? You had a lot of big dreams back then. Did you ever become a race car driver or a lawyer? Oh wait, you have a show on cable now? What happened? I'm only teasing. I'm a big fan and I wish you and the new show all the best. Talk to you soon. I'm sorry. It was, it was at the time, it wasn't that out of fashion. And by the way, yeah, I, I did get a law degree. I do race cars, and I do host a show. All right, so what other ways can generative AI be used for good instead of evil? Let's talk about it with the co-founder and CEO of DID, Gil Perry. Gil, I love you and I hate you for that. I mean, it, it, even though it brought back, I mean, like, how could that even be possible? All right, so tell me what we can do with this. If, I got a, if I've got a photograph of my grandfather, my great-grandfather -grand, I loved, you know, died years ago, George, uh, what can I do? So first, great to be here. And... Uh, if you have photos of your ancestors and loved ones, you can uh, bring them to life. We did such uh, projects in the past, but actually it's a much, much more powerful tool. As you can see uh, on the screen with our AI assistants, today we are the largest platform for the creation of digital humans. AI assistants, we created more than 150 million such digital humans, which you can converse with. And if you are a business, you can use them for training, marketing, customer support, customer service, salespeople, that humans can converse with them. So I, I could, if I was twisted soul, and I kind of am, I could make my digital assistant, but I could actually make my digital assistant that photo of me at 18 years old. You can make it whoever you want. Is that correct? I mean, not that I would want to look at that hot mess, but you could make it whatever you want. Yes, if you have the license to use this uh, photo, then you can do that. We actually have more than 30,000 developers, which in the last three months uh, started to develop such AI assistants and businesses on top of our uh, platform. That's a new developer every four minutes. What we are seeing now is like the first days or months mm -hmm. of the App Store where it's a new platform, a new shift, and people, this is the good time to start building on top of such tech platforms. 10 seconds, roughly, can you give us an idea how much this cost? So you can, anyone can start, start at studio.d-id.com for free for two weeks. Then it starts from a few dollars, you go down to several, you go up to several hundreds of dollars, and then you move to enterprise. So our growth strategy mm -hmm. is G, product-led growth. Uh, we are for we are yep. partnering with business Gil, and developers, I, but I've got to use that. Thing. I've got to wrap you there, but I, I love. We got ten seconds of the show. I love you. Thank you for doing it. 
Very creepy and cool, but awesome. Thank you very much, Gil. Folks, thank you for watching. Happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there, and we honor Juneteenth on Monday as well. Enjoy the long weekend. Forget about the mullet. I'll see you on Tuesday. When you visit a state as big and diverse as Texas, there are a million different trips you can take. Let's say you've got an appetite for whitewater kayaking. You can get your own. So this is why they call it Devil's River. Trip to Texas. Or maybe you have an actual appetite. I'll take a pound of brisket, six ribs, uh, three links of sausage, and a, a piece of pecan pie. Trip to Texas. Go to TravelTexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours.